Welcome back to another episode of Are You a Robot? Let's get a quick intro from our guest today, Enrico. So I'm Enrico Panay and I'm a philosopher that always worked in the ICT sector. Uh, I uh, came from uh, Italy and uh, now I'm living in France. Uh, even if I spent a little bit of time in England, uh, Scarborough, North Yorkshire. And uh, um, in my in, in my career, I um, worked as uh, as a consultant in the ICT sector and uh, taught uh, in information technology at university for several years. And uh, now I'm still uh, working in the ICT sector as a ethicist of information. And so I'm working with the AI and other uh, stuff like that. So in case you are new here and you have not listened to the episodes or the show before, I'm Dimitrios Brinkman, the host, and this is a series where we aim to tackle some of the greatest challenges and questions that stem from AI and related technologies. The way that we're going about that is by gathering all of the best minds in their respective fields to come on here and talk with me about what it is exactly they're doing, if they have any insights they can share with the greater community, and if there are any best practices that we can walk away with. So I will mention that we are not done here. If you like what you hear, if you like what you're listening to, jump in to our Slack community, which we have built around these topics. And we really are trying to create a space so that those of us who like to nerd out on AI ethics and all of the other technologies that pertain to this, we can go there and talk with like-minded individuals. Jump into our Slack community. You can find a link to that below in the description. And last but not least, I want to give a huge shout out to our sponsor for this season. If you've listened to the other seasons, you know that our past sponsors are usually ethics grade. But this season, we changed it up and we have For Humanity sponsoring the show. For Humanity, for anyone who doesn't know, it's an organization that is developing an infrastructure of trust in AI through independent audits of AI systems. We've had a lot of the For Humanity fellows on the show before, so you've probably heard it talked about. But now, this season, they came and they said, hey, we like what you're doing. We want to sponsor it. So a big thank you to Ryan and all the folks at For Humanity for the hard and incredible work they are doing. And without further ado, let's talk with Enrico. Are you a robot? Excellent. Enrico, I appreciate you coming on here. I know we've been having a little bit of technical difficulties, so I can already see that you are a patient man, and that is a virtue, as they say. So thank you for joining us. Maybe you could give us a bit of information to start on your background and how you came to be where you are. Okay. Um, I... Uh, I started uh, uh, developing when I was uh, 10 years old with my first uh, uh, home computer. Uh, then I was passionate uh, of, uh, about philosophy 
and I decided to study philosophy at university. But uh, at the time, uh, philosophy, uh, at least in Italy, was uh, already separated by the scientific disciplines. So I decided to study philosophy, uh, trying to do exams uh, in other faculties uh, just to, to have a more scientific background. And then I'm presented at the end, I presented a thesis with a, a, a ethicist, a, philosoph a philosopher of ethics, and a mathematician that was working in, uh, uh, in already in artificial in intelligence, in uh, uh, neuronal networks. So at the very beginning, I mixed the two, uh, the two fields very much. But... Uh, when I was at university, I started working for um, the industry uh, of the. Uh, I, I was I started to teach ICT for the some airline companies, some uh, telecommunication companies, and so I always worked in the in this sector. And at the, at, the, uh, at the end of university, I had the chance to uh, to after one year spent in in England in Scarborough, North Yorkshire. And I, I, I think you know the beautiful song of Samuel Logan Fulker about it. Uh, I spent, uh, I, I came back to Italy and became a professor at university in uh, computing in the humanities. Nowadays, uh, digital uh, humanities. And so I worked for uh, about seven years at university, but always uh, uh, doing consulting for the ICT the industry and then I decided to leave to France and I left uh, the academy and started to work uh, for some big insurance companies and, and, and carried on, carried on uh, uh, teaching ICT at several levels from engineers to, uh, to uh, unemployed people because what I liked it was uh, feeling the informational transformation that we were living. So it was my way to, to understand how everything was happening. And so I always worked from coding to informational strategies. So from uh, consulting to little small companies to a CEO. And I, I like changing the level of abstraction anytime, the level of granularity, and uh, so, but what I realized was my that everything that helped me to 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 make decision was the strong framework in ethics I just built when uh, when I was at university. Every kind of decision from uh, the position of a bottom, the color of uh, an interface, uh, a line of code of code, they are made by your capacity to understand how your decision is going to impact the informational env environment around you. It's fascinating stuff. And I know you're working with For Humanity right now, and I'd love to get a bit of color around what exactly you're doing with For Humanity and a little more information about it. Uh, I imagine people that are listening have heard about For Humanity. We've had Ryan on here, who is the founder of For Humanity. Mm -hmm. And we've also talked about For Humanity quite a bit 
but your specific projects with For Humanity, what, what are you doing with them? Uh, so I, I arrived, uh, um, I started to collaborate with Ryan last year, and uh, I'm, I'm quite a shy guy at the beginning. When I uh, arrived in an environment I don't know, I spent a bit of time to understand what uh, the hell they are doing or talking about. And uh, while I'm a philosopher, I, 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 because I'm a philosopher, I can't stand not to understand every bit of war, what I'm uh, uh, coping with. So I, I, on my own, I started to, to, to draw the ontology of, for humanity to try to understand every kind of uh, knowledge they were using, how they were using words, how they were using concepts, and the contradiction between uh, a concept in uh, different languages and different cultures. Because, because in for humanity, we have a lot of different uh, um, culture from uh, several countries, uh, a lot of people that are not uh, uh, English native speakers uh, and like me, and uh, and even for people of the same country, if you have a, a semantic capital behind you that uh, make you uh, understand the world in a way or in another, you have to find a bridge to make people to communicate. So my first step was. Uh, trying to learn and the curve, the learning curve was very, very steep. And so I had to, to create this ontology and it took me a few months. And from that I started to, to change level of abstraction and I worked on the real database of the criteria we are developing with for humanity. So uh, now uh, I'm uh, Ryan would call me uh, chief technological officer, but I don't like the word technological because it's uh, too uh, narrow. Uh, I would prefer kind of a, a chief semantic officer, trying to find the hidden meanings of what we are doing and try to make it computational so we can uh, produce stuff and uh, scale up the, uh, the, the association. This is one, things, uh, one thing I'm doing. And the other one I'm passionate and I'm working a lot on it also is the code of data ethics. Mm -hmm. uh, generally, we are talking about uh, code of ethics in enterprises, but there are not a lot of code of data ethics around in the market. And generally, when you have something written, there are generally principles. So be fair, be transparent, uh, and okay, that's fair enough. But the point is when uh, you are going to code something, uh, you need something more to, to, to make a, a good decision. And so I'm trying to, I, I took a, a great paper from uh, uh, Luciano Floridi and Maria Rosaria Tadeo. They are working at Oxford and is, uh, it is uh, what uh, is data ethics, and I tried to build a real code of data ethics starting from this uh, uh, framework. And so 
this is the two main things I'm doing at the moment. Can you talk a little bit more about this code of data ethics and what exactly is it? If I'm an engineer, can I use it while I'm coding? And there's certain check marks that I should be aware of? Yes, yes. You transform it in some... Uh, I, I don't think that uh, uh, we should give rules for programming because if you give only rules, you, you risk to, uh, to destroy the creativity of a developer. So it's, uh, it's not good enough. But you have to create a, a clean environment where people can reason in an ethical way, can make the good decision. They need to have the good language to do it and uh, uh, the good processes, and they have to be helped to, to make decisions. So uh, in this very moment, uh, we generally have the uh, ethics officer, officers on a high, high level, but uh, I, do, I never knew um, a developer that would call an ethics officer when he's developing because the majority of decisions are very small. So you are, going, you are not going to make a, a meeting about it. Uh, but if the developer start to to reflect about the process of data in an ethical way, uh, then uh, when he's making a decision, he's going to make the right decision. I I explain you the code of data ethics. The code of data ethics it implies that everybody in the uh, in an organization will have some specific responsibilities and uh, will uh, take into account uh, some kind of reasoning. A, a, a point, an important point at the moment is that data ethics is not only ethics, because ethics in an organization is more about business ethics. It's not about data ethics. So uh, you have uh, already to devise the three main uh, area of uh, data ethics, working about data, how to collect, how to stock, how to treat this data, and the processing, how to uh, work on algorithms and uh, how to produce outputs. And at the same time, you have all the practices around it. For example, if you uh, need to, to make people think in an ethical way, you need to give them the skills to do them, so to to teach them how to think in an ethical way uh, with the right language, and another thing is to give them the time to do that, because generally nobody gives the developers the time to think about a problem. So I like what you said there about the small decisions being made by developers, and it reminds me of that saying, death by a thousand cuts, and before you know it, you've created a monster by all of these small decisions that you're making. And the first thing that comes to my mind is while coding, is it not the bigger picture that is more important to get ethically correct as opposed to the few lines of code that you're executing to try and get to that bigger picture? Um. 
I think that uh, uh, we, we are talking a lot about uh, nudging in psychology, in psychology, and uh, about the uh, the way AI should behave. And now, when when you are creating, I, I'll be very technical there. When you are creating a a, a select list with several options, the way you do it, you you are nudging the the behavior of the people who are using the interface, even in that. Uh, if just to uh, put, you put the, the, the OK button on the right and the cancel button on the left, you are reducing the time on, on dialogue, of dialogue with the interface. Because I'm going to click on the OK button, but if the cancel is on the right, I have to think, I'm really sure that I want to, to click OK or I have to take more time to it. And it's a, generally it's a few seconds, but those few seconds are very important for people who use a lot of time the same interface. So uh, now I'm not talking about the, how this impacts the artificial intelligence, but even in the smallest uh, process, you can interfere in this system. And uh, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, yes, you have you need to have the big picture. You have to you need to change the level of abstraction anytime. But a developer that is coding and uh, is getting uh, three hundred error per day because he forgotten a comma, he forgotten a variable to declare a variable or you, who codes knows this kind of stuff. And so he's completely frustrated. He has not the time to reflect about these stuff because his uh, uh, manager is asking him to produce something. And, and this is very important because he could produce something better and that is... Uh, is thought is designed behind the interface. That's why at the beginning I told you I'm working with human in information interaction, not human computer interaction, because the information starting starts from your brain and is going to arrive to another brain. And it's not only the media I'm using to translate this information. That's why, that's why talking about technology is not enough. We have to talk about the, all the informational process. I think that the point that you're making around time and taking the time, not only from the user, the end user perspective, but also from the developer perspective to reflect is a fascinating piece that you're looking at. And so as a developer, you mentioned it very clearly here that a developer has maybe deadlines to hit or they're doing their two-week sprint and they got to get something pushed out by today and they don't have that time to sit and reflect on what they're creating. In this framework that you're making, how does that change? Uh it's changed because uh, uh, the 
all the chain of uh, uh, decision makers, so the CEO, the uh, the ethical officers, etc., they have to allow people to 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 have the time to do it. They have to declare that people are uh, have the skills, the language, and the time to do this kind of decisions. And if you don't, it's like uh, uh, training for security problems. Okay, in any uh, factory, you have uh, training every month to reduce the the problem about problems about security. If you want to improve the ethical reasoning, you have to do it every time. Uh, I just uh, I don't know if you uh, ever heard about Dan Ariely. Is a uh, for me, is a great uh, uh, behavioral psychologist, and he was worked a lot about behavioral people and uh, and even how people cheat during tests, and he demonstrated that the uh, ethical bubble we are in is uh, uh, it can't last a long a long time. It should be uh, reinforced very often. So, for example, he tested something very stupid. He demanded to, to different classes of, from different universities in the U.S. to, uh, to um, uh, swear, to be honest, uh, respecting the code of the university. But only one of the three universities he tested had, in reality, a code. So... Just the idea of swearing, uh, it makes you in an ethical bubble. Another test showed that, for example, if you ask people to list the Ten Commandments, even if they are not Christians, they are entering in an ethical bubble. Another test shows that if you sign a declaration at the beginning and not at the end, you'll say, you, you declare uh, the honest uh, um, information about your declaration more than you sign at the end. So the ethical bubble is something that we have to uh, nourish. We have to to reinforce every day or very often. We can't not pretend to have a developer that we behave ethically if we don't give him, if we don't reinforce this bubble every time. So it's the the ethical bubble and the ability to nurture. I liked that word that you're saying, nurture the ethics within a team, within a company, and make sure that everyone is continuously being held to that standard and also continuously learning about the ethics of a company, I would imagine, and so that they don't go too long before seeing that ethics are important and an important part of a company culture. And so that way it's never it's too it. far from their mind and it's not something that's in the back of their mind. It's something that is very much at the front of their mind. So speaking about the two-week sprints that most software development teams act in, is this just... L- budgeting time for reflection or is there active uh, ethical 
classes that you're asking people to go through? What exactly does that look yeah. like in practice? It's, uh, that's funny because... Uh, the majority of people think that ethics is like a burden to 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 produce to produce something fast, and uh, I'm the living example that uh, an ethical thinking is the way to produce faster than if you don't think ethically. It's uh, uh, I, I like an example. I, I will quote today as always a lot of time the same philosopher the the, the um, uh, father of the philosophy of information, Luciano Floridi, and uh, uh, he generally used to say that philosophy is like a, a long, uh, long jumper. He takes a few steps backward and uh, he, he thinks to jump higher in order to go further. So we are taking just two steps backward but we'll go further. Now, if I was a philosopher, a standard philosopher that never coded and never had to produce outputs, I wouldn't be uh, reliable. But in reality, I do produce outputs and generally in a fast way, just because I think ethically. And I, 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 use, a, I use a particular kind of ethics, uh, I, I use the ethic that is uh, adapted to this century and to our technologies, so the ethics of information. If I try to use another kind of ethics, I, I wouldn't be so efficient in my developing. Uh, so you have to choose the right tool for the right century. And for me, this the right tool is the ethics of information today. And I, I tell you something more. The ethics of information was developed in the few 20 years, but uh, in reality, the people who started in the 90s to develop with a philosophical approach, they already used this ethic every day. So it's uh, there. It was only structured in a few decades, uh, a few last decades. So I think that the ethics is the right instrument to go faster, not to slow down the process. Yeah, it is the constant debate that you hear that if we start adding in all of this ethics crap, then we're never going to advance or we're never going to innovate. So I appreciate you pointing that out and showing that you are living proof that that is not true. I'm wondering why you feel philosophy is important and particularly important when it comes to coding and AI slash machine learning? Okay. Uh, I'll, uh, so philosophy is important. Uh, I'm quoting Bertrand Russell. I would say that philosophy is important because it's uh, enrich your intellectual thinking. So you, you can have a critical thinking. Uh, and you know how to make better questions. And that's good. The point is that if you are able only to make questions and not only to give some answers, you are, uh, you are not useful for a company. So you should be a philosopher that create a good questions and to help 
to find also a good answers. And in, in this case, I'll quote again, uh, uh, Floridi is generally thinking about philosophy. It, it uses a metaphor that I, I do love. It's about salt. Uh, he's saying that philosophy is like salt. So if you um, use philosophy, you have to use philosophy a bit everywhere, like in dishes, but you cannot eat spoons of salt because you died of it. So you should use philosophy a bit everywhere because it helps you to, to structure your reasoning. Uh, we'll talk maybe later which kind of philosophy is, is important, but just before you told about the problem of ethics and how it's seen as a problem. And uh, the point is that people do not realize that they use ethics and philosophy every day, in every moment, because you have your own ethical framework to make any kind of decision. The point is to know which one you are using and not to be uh, drived by your frameworks, but to be able to manage with it. Uh, just for an example, uh, generally people uh, make a mistake about etiquette and ethics. Uh, so we have to do it because everybody do it. This is uh, etiquette. Okay, so it's a burden, something more that we have to do. And it's a for very formal, like you go to the queen, so you have an etiquette to respect. It's not about ethics. Ethics is, uh, is uh, a, a tool used by philosophy to uh, find the, the better, uh, not the best, because uh, you will never find the best solution, but the better solution in a context, in a defined context. So the philosophy gives you all the tools to make this, uh, this, uh, this kind of reasoning. And if you do not have, if you never studied philosophy, you are always making philosophical reasoning because your life is made by philosophy. Because uh, I don't know if you have any children, but uh, a, a child, a very young child, asks questions, philosophical questions, very early. Why God exists? Uh, why there is life and death? Uh, why we do something or something not? So philosophy is uh, like our language. It's so connected to language that we cannot imagine to separate our language from our way of thinking. So my point is that is there, and it's like a horse that you cannot uh, uh, manage, or you try to study philosophy to try to manage this horse that, uh, to, that it's very strong, but it's difficult to, to ride. All right, so I like the notion that you were talking about on how we are always going through and living out our philosophical beliefs in the day-to-day. -day. It really reminds me of, yeah, like this saying, another saying, which is we're a product of our environment and without even realizing it, we're making these choices. We don't necessarily consciously realize we're making decisions in every moment, but it's happening. And sometimes they're unconscious, sometimes they're conscious, but what I like 
that you mentioned is bringing that to the forefront and making it so it's like we are acting instead of reacting. And when we are making choices, we're very clear and concise. And also, we know that we are making a choice on this. Whether or not we are choosing, like you said, it, we can't be 100% ethical, um, ethically perfect, because ethics are the looking best solution, not the perfect solution, because there is no perfect ethical solution there. So I like this idea also about the philosophers and the two different kinds of philosophers that you talk about and how if you just raise questions and call yourself a philosopher, then you're not providing any business value to a company. You have to also bring with it some suggestions of the solutions to, or the answers to the questions that you're providing. Now, what other professions do you feel we need in the AI development at this time? For example, is there a need right now for more lawyers to be involved in the machine learning model development life cycles? Or is there a need for, as you were saying, more philosophers, or is it just that we need to take these engineers that are already working on this stuff, or the data scientists, and make philosophers out of them in the little ways that we can? Okay. Um, I think that oh, I start with lawyers that I love, but they, uh, they want to be compliant to rules. So it's another kind of job. We need, we need lawyers, but in everyday life, we use ethics more than law, okay? It's, uh, it's our way of living. Uh, so I don't, uh, I, th I don't think we need more philosopher because it would be a sectarian uh, approach. Like uh, it's uh, the, Every philosopher is a good philosopher. No, 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 I won't say that to you. We need uh, more philosophy and more good philosophy. And uh, uh, we need philosopher, good philosopher also to, to be like a coach, coaches that help people to, to, to find the word to use to talk about a, a kind of uh, uh, topic. Uh, but we need a lot of different, uh, a lot of different profession when we are talking about AI. For example, think that the NASA use uh, Robert Lang as an expert for origami to fold the satellite uh, to unfold them when they arrive into space, and that's the point. He's a physician, but his origami uh, competence. It helps to do his job. So at the same time, in AI, we are working with human behavior. So we need psychologists. Uh, we are working with something very profound in people. We, so we need artists to know how a kind of artificial intelligence can uh, change profoundly a person. Uh, 
uh, as a philosopher, I would say ontologically a person. But uh, we also need uh, pedagogists to help to learn uh, to find a better way to learn stuff. And for example, nobody thought about it, but we would need magicians in AI because we are treating uh, a, a lot of biases. And who are the best people to manage with biases, if not magicians? So why we don't call magicians to, to make uh, help us uh, find a better solutions for for uh, uh, for the AI we are producing. So I, I, don't, I don't think we need a category, we need a, a language, a common language, and philosopher can help to find this kind of language. Uh, like uh, Wittgenstein would say, it's the riverbed where our, our thought should flow, but the riverbed should be the same. If everybody's talking with... Uh, uh, polysemantic world, so the world that uh, are portmanteaus where you put every meaning you wish inside, then you find people that don't understand each other and uh, it's impossible to find a solution. Uh, so I, I think we need philosophy and not only philosopher. Yes, you're right. Uh, why we don't teach philosophy to engineers? And that's a, a, a big problem for me, for me because I have a son and I see how schools are organized. And when you arrive at a certain level, they make you choose more scientific or philosophical or literary. But why? Just uh, uh, all, all, in all the history of philosophy, philosophers were mathematicians. Why you can study philosophy and mathematics? And uh, I make you, there is a, a something that is it, a dream of mine. Uh, I, I love cooking, and uh, I think that uh, the cooking is the best metaphor to learn the world. So when I'm cooking, I can talk uh, uh, with my son about economy of products, about uh, chemistry, physics, philosophy, uh, and Yes. geopolitics and everything. And you can just talk about it in a kitchen using the thing you are producing, even data. Think about the metaphors of data like uh, meta, uh, data are like the petrol, the, the, the petrol, the, the gas of today. Uh, that's not true because, because we are running off this kind of uh, carbon uh, products, they are like, and we are multiplying data. So the metaphor is not the right one. Meta the data are more like uh, uh, food that we produce, that we have to treat before putting them in an algorithm to, to, to make them work. So it's more the, the metaphor of the kitchen that you are using when you are treating data. So why you don't use a, a, a product that has a spirit to, to make your dishes because it won't be, won't be good at the same time when you are using data in a machine learning, you have to care about the data you are using and they have 
a life a life cycle that you have to respect and they are going to produce something in your everyday life you'll be more healthy you uh, live well and you if you eat something good you'll be more happy and it's the same with data now i'm starting to understand why you had that salt metaphor back <laughs> a few minutes ago <laughs> And philo philosophy being something that you sprinkle on top of the food and it brings out the flavor, it enriches things, but it's not meant to be eaten as a spoonful. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, that's incredible. And, and also it's, it shows how creative you are and able to take anything and bring it into these metaphors of food. I'm wondering because... You're one of the few people that I talk to that is very deep into philosophy, but also is very deep into coding and tech. Why do you feel there is not as much of these two worlds being combined? You mentioned before that in school, you get separated into the two different lines. Maybe you go into literature or the humanities and that in the way that we educate our students these days is diametrically opposed to the hard sciences or the different um, things like coding. So what is it that you feel creates the lack of the philosophers in coding? Is it that? Is it just school? I don't think that can be like the easiest scapegoat. <laughs> or I, it is, it's too easy of a scapegoat is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, I, I must admit that uh, sometimes philosophers are very boring. So <laughs> it's not every kind of philosopher that is interesting to listen because when you... Um, where you cannot, oh, in, in a, I'll take a, a step back. In, a, uh, in computer science, you use level of abstractions to find the right solution for a problem. In philosophy of information, you use the same level of abstraction to find the right uh, solution for a philosophical problem. Um, the point is that. Uh, uh, I do like using this kind of level of abstraction and changing the granularity I use for each kind of problem. That is completely philosophical. And if you imagine that everywhere in hard science, they use a philosophical, uh, a philosophical, um, a philosophical tool like logic, you imagine that philosophy is very important for the epistemology of science today. You can't not do science without logic, but logic logics is made by philosophers, not by only mathematicians. So, and uh, the point is, there is a, there are other tools in philosophy that can be interesting. But I'm talking now of two uh, Swiss knives that we can use every day. One is logics. And the other one is ethics, okay? We do live in an ethical world. Even, even the worst criminals use a, have got their own ethical framework to make a decision. So ethics is, 
everywhere. The point is how to use this kind of ethics or the right kind of ethics to make a decision when developing. Why, you, you say, why we are, we don't find a lot of uh, philosophers that are coding or uh, developers that are doing philosopher. I don't know. I know that uh, I would distinguish between old developers and young developers. And as always, when you did a lot of mistakes, you try to find the meaning of what you are doing. So you are going to steer toward the philosophy, philosophical approach. Now, I had the opportunity to study philosophy at the beginning and to code at the beginning. So it was just a, a problem of luck in my generation. But uh, I found it very easy because I, I love coding. Why? Because it's lo pure logic. It's a formal language and you are right or wrong. It's easy. But if you, if you do something only for uh, related to the code, if you don't change the way you, you reason about the code, you are, you are becoming, I would use a strong word, but quite a Nazi. It's when, when rules and algorithms are not used for humanity, and this is the word, not for you or me, not for me and my, uh, and my son or the citizen in France or in Europe. It's, it's not only people, but the relation we have together. That's it's important. And, that's, and generally, uh, the philosophers are quite egocentric. Uh, and so philosoph philosophy is quite focused on me and myself and the I and the entity, but not the relation. We should put ourselves in the periphery and take care of what we are doing. And that's it's very visible in an informational system. You make a developer produce a, a, a software and the person who is uh, doing a who is doing the software it is God that is doing a system. It's not a, 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 a father who cares for his son or for his daughter that is using a system. In France, I fought a lot of time because developer, developers used to call the final user the Lambda user. And I told them that a Lambda user is a person Okay, it's not uh, a lambda user; it's a person. And uh, if you want to uh, make your software eff efficient, your your software must must create a relation with with uh, with this person in, in the long term. So, I think that philosophy and information technology are quite. Uh, uh, it can be very very near nowadays. And I believe a, a big problem is education. And I fought against my university to, to find, uh, to go in another faculty study 
databases and uh, operational systems and logics, I fought because it wasn't normal. So, so, and it, because I liked, because I, I, because I didn't like to talk only about philosophy. You know, I, I, I like to talk yeah. about uh, uh, music when we are talking about music without quoting Aristotle when I'm talking about music. Even if my structure of thought are made by the philosophical reasoning. So I have to change the, this kind of abstraction, be real. Uh, and uh, just for just to answer and finish with your questions, the philosopher I liked when I started to study philosophy was Socrates. And uh, strangely enough, at the end of my studies, I always liked Socrates as a philosopher because generally you know a lot of new stuff, so you change your advices. But Socrates was the only one that never wrote anything, nothing, okay? It's the only philosopher. And... Uh, and the, he was the only one that didn't really create a, 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 I can say a, a group of philosophers that followed him. So you have Platon and Aristotle, and you have two kind of line of discussion. But Socrates was a unique element in history of philosophy, and he was a great fighter when he was younger. He was a fighter. A, and uh, a, a person that could reason very well. It wasn't very interesting on making money. Uh, what he liked was something very important and that we lack today a lot. It was time, a lot of time to discuss. That's why I was telling you uh, we need uh, education and uh, we need time give time to people. Hmm. So what do you think we can do to encourage more philosophers or philosophy, as you said? I think uh, uh, there's a big distinction there, not more philosophers, because <laughs> too many cooks in the kitchen spoil the soup, as they <laughs> say, but more philosophical conversations, more philosophy to enter into the world of AI these days yeah. starting you starting by education uh, there are some uh, kin kindergarten uh, i have a, a great friend of mine uh, she studied philosophy with me and she worked for years in a kindergarten and uh, she used to do philosophy with uh, uh, with children so it's it's feasible and they start to to reflect uh, I use the word, the verb to do philosophy because the difference is to talk about philosophy. That's when it's not funny. You know, we are going to discuss what uh, uh, Spinoza said and we have two different opinions. Okay, we can, it's great. We can have a, a wonderful discussion, but we are not doing philosophy. We are discussing about philosophy and what other people think about a philosopher. So, and we, you can do philosophy every day. You do it when, uh, when a person tell me, uh, I'm, uh, uh, sometimes I imagine myself being a bird, but 
what you are doing if your philosophy of the mind, you know, you don't have the language, but you started to, to think about it. Uh, so that's the first point. We need more philosophy everywhere and not only history of philosophy and not only for one, two years, we need uh, the philosophy for from the beginning to university uh, because if we don't do if we don't do that now we need uh, more philosophy in the future for uh, developers anyway so so we need to introduce philosophy in in uh, in schools and uh, to have also good uh, philosopher uh, that teach philosophy. I had the chance, the opportunity to have a, a great professor of philosophy in uh, uh, when I was in high school, and uh, we are still talking and sending messages uh, every month, uh, uh, exchanging papers, and he's not uh, at all a, a, a nerd, but but. And he has got political opinions that are sometimes different from mine. But we always worked on the well-being of our relation. So uh, we have to respect this environment when we live. And our ideas, ideas should be exchanged uh, with respect and in a way that we can improve a little bit humanity because I won't change the world, I'm sure of it. But I do a little bit better every day. The second thing is time. Again, we need, if you give a lot of homework to the uh, kid, he won't have the time to, uh, to be bored. And boredness is the first element to become a philosopher. Okay, <laughs> you need this. Uh, in, in the north of Europe, there is a new approach that is developing. I read a few weeks ago. It's about the Nixon. Uh, the Nixon approach uh, stresses on the importance of respecting your chronotype. Grosso modo, generally said, when you are working in a company, you have to make your find your time to do nothing, just nothing, and then you'll be more. Uh, efficient when you are making decision, and that's normal. Mm. So, so we should respect ourselves. It's that's are for me. Those are for me the two elements that we have to add to the the process to bring more philosophy in uh, in our everyday life. There's so many great points there, and especially when it comes to doing philosophy as opposed to just speaking about it or studying it. It's much different. I like the verb there to invoke this action of actually being present with it and mixing, being intertwined in the whole process of philosophy. And then the other piece, of course, time is one of those things right now that is is huge. And I've heard it many times spoken about how important it is for a child in their development process to be bored. And so I can get behind you on that one. I know that with children, it is something I see with my own daughter. She needs that 
time to go and be bored and so that she can be creative and she can learn from that boredom and and also with ourselves in our own lives when was the last time that we just sat and did nothing so it is an important factor we need to bring more of that into our lives and or at least try and incorporate a bit more of that into our our daily lives now, Enrico, this has been incredible. I know that I've kept you a little bit over time. Speaking of time, <laughs> I want to be respectful of it and of your time. And so I have one last question for you. Enrico, are you a robot? <laughs> uh, no. I, I'm, I'm too lazy to be a robot. <laughs> I cannot be a robot. Uh, uh, you know, uh, find uh, if you find again the, the etymology of robot, it's uh, a slave, a forced labor. So, so I, I just cannot be uh, a slave of labor and so being a robot. It's not my aim. Yes, I do sometimes some repetitive process because they are uh, we are used with that, but definitely. I want to have a lot of robots to do the stuff I don't like to do around me and to, 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 to gain time, to have more time. Okay, so, so the robots are welcomed if they are not going to uh, take my time. That's the point. When you are developing a robot, it should not take my time. That's the first uh, element. So in a, a philosophical way, we should say it should not augment, increase the metaphysical entropy of my infosphere. That's it. A robot should not bother me with stupid reasoning and should me just let me free to think for myself because I do love it. It's my artistic part of thinking. Hmm. Is a robot ever going to be able to cook as well as you do? Ah, never. <laughs> Excellent. Enrico, this has been fascinating. I love it. I really enjoy talking to you and I appreciate your patience through all of these technical difficulties that we had and the people listening probably will never realize what kind of hoops we had to jump through to get this recorded, but it was done. We persisted and we made it happen. So thanks again, Enrico. Thank you very much to you. Bye.